Aziraphale collected books. If he were totally honest with himself, he would have to have admitted that his bookshop was simply somewhere to store them. It was not unusual in this. In order to maintain his cover as a typical second-hand bookseller, he used every means short of actual physical violence to prevent customers from making a purchase. Unpleasant damp smells, glowering looks, erratic opening hours. He was incredibly good at it. Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. Good omens. The Bookworm, Sunday, 12 to 1 on Fab Radio International. Hello, you're listening to Fab Radio International. I'm producer Al. And I'm Ed Fortune. We're not here this week. Since we pre-recorded this show, Sir Terry Pratchett has passed away. He was 66 years old. Entirely coincidentally, Sire, our co-host, who is a huge Terry Pratchett fan, reviews Raising Steam, the most recently published Discworld novel. All of us here at the Bookworm offer our condolences to Sir Terry's family and friends. He will be missed by us all. It's Sunday, you're listening to FabRadioInternational.com and where the Bookworm, brought to you in association with Starburst Magazine. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... Your other host, Cy Lloyd. So, on today's show, I will be talking about the heart of the world. And I shall be talking about Terry Pratchett's Raising Steam. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about exciting books that are coming out very soon, and the usual book chatter and gossip. Embrace the alternative. So the strains of that particular theme tune tell us that it's time to talk about book news or book-related things or stuff that's coming out in the world of books. So something that's coming out very soon is The Scarlet Gospels by Clive Barker. Yes, Clive Barker. Um, it's, it's more Xenobites, isn't it? it? It's more Xenobites. It's it's the Xenobite party that they turn up, they do a bit of a boogie. Um, it's got Harry Damore... Who is the you know, who is the detective dude from quite a few of his books? Yeah, Lord of Illusions is the the, the, the one that people know. Yeah, he he's the one that he kind of he kind of survives through um, hazard rather than you know, looking hazard rather than yeah. anything else. Because uh, Clive Barker's horror worlds are not very friendly. I mean, most horror worlds aren't, but these are particularly naughty, shall we say? Yeah, there's not really a lot that you can do against Clive Barker horror except get lucky, like Harry Demore. You don't want to get lucky with a centre-bite, though. That's no, exact, yeah, no, not get lucky in that way. That's um, the exact opposite. Could, could, <laughs> you know, hi, can you imagine, you know, on Tinder? No, no, just no. Even the female ones are a bit strong for me, I don't know, just a bit, a bit harsh. Hello, <laughs> I'm Clive Barker, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yes, very interesting tastes, shall we say. Famous for his very interesting tastes also. Um, so, we're going to learn more about the centre-bites themselves, we're going to learn about the puzzle boxes. Uh, it's apparently not a book about the puzzle boxes but it's going to explain some of the Marchand box and you know what they use the mechanisms mm. of hell um, we're going to learn Pinhead's Xenobite name because apparently he has one right um, Barker will be gleefully ignoring the movies as well which is please I'm, I'm glad to be honest I quite like the one that explained who Le Marchand was actually which I think was four 
but I is saw. That, is that the one where there's a bit of it in space? Yes. Yeah. There's yeah. a bit of it in space. I simply liked it because there was a bit of it in space, and it was like we've made the space station, but it's a puzzle box, and I was just like, ah, I think that's kind of cool. But I think that's kind of cool. Most of the people who are sensible, you know, no. Oh, what else is coming out? Love is Red by Sophie Jaff. Um, his debut novel, which has been uh, compared to Lauren Bucus, The Shannon Girls. The thing is, I do have a slight request here. You know how most fantasy novels are now compared to a Game of Thrones? It's the sign of the times, Ed. If you are a, a, a female horror writer mm-hmm. um, who's recently written a novel, and you're, you know, please, please, if your publicist says, we're going to compare you to Lauren Bucus, please don't. Because everything, everything is the next Shining Girls. The next Shining Girls is, is like, no. Do you, do you know what? There's a, there's a whole load of original fiction that isn't written by a South African horror writer. Seriously, honestly, there, there really is. So Sophie Giraffe isn't South African. Um, she has written a horror debut novel. Nor has she said a lot. But apparently this book is... It, it's, it starts off as your typical romance. So she's a young woman living in the city, trying right. to decide between two men, and that's the first half. That's like one half of the novel. The other half of the novel is about a creature called the Sickle Man, which is a horrible serial killer monster. Okay. So we've got this. Is ro- he one of her two men? <laughs> well, we don't know because there's something definitely off about about her dating habits, shall we say? Right. And that that's how it's been kind of sold. It's like one half romance novel, the other half serial killing. I think this could be quite fun, actually. Okay, okay. But nothing like The Shining Girls from its description. So it's nothing like The Shining Girls at all. I've not read The Shining Girls. It's fantastic, you should do. Okay. Is everything like it? Everything is like, in the same way that everything is like Game of Thrones, including Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. <laughs> uh. They've got a point, Ed. <laughs> Talking of fantasy novels that are that are like Game of Thrones, except they absolutely aren't, and are much more about much more about the Lankmore books than anything else. Gotrick and Felix Slayer. Now, this is not a book about a troll slayer who goes to a rock concert. I know you'll be quite disappointed, but you know, Gotrick and Felix go to a Slayer concert. I'd love that. I, I, I quite like that. Gotrick would be like, they are not Slayers. They are. They are. They are. They are in fact Slayer. Yeah. That's not what this is about. Uh, David Gamer has written the last Gortrick and Phoenix book. Um, this short, spiky head killing machine known as Gortrick the dwarf, dwarf will finally meet his fate. Really? He's been waiting a long time. Well, I think that's why they've decided to go, well, do you know what, maybe we should end it. Because you can always tell more Gortrick and Phoenix stories just before he got eaten, or killed, or whatever it is. Yeah, he, he, the stuff he does gets more and more unfeasible, and the artwork reflecting him, he just gets bigger and bigger. He's about five feet wide, despite being three and a half feet tall. <laughs> if you're a su- suicidal dwarf, troll, troll slayer, Gotrick is a troll slayer, which means that he's done something wrong in his community, and rather than you know killing himself, he's charged himself into the biggest monster he can find, in the hopes of killing it, but also in the hopes of it killing him at the same time. But because he's so tough, he's not found something big enough to kill that's also killed him. So he's like murdered dragons by now, I believe. Yep. Uh, he keeps getting away with it. And his, his friend Felix kind of tags along and writes a story. In this, apparently, it starts with Felix going, uh, and not being near the dwarf. But that happens in about half the novels anyway. You know, Felix and Godric have an argument, have a tiff. Yeah. Aren't together, and then Felix is like, I'd better find out what's going on with the dwarf, because he's still alive somehow. 
Yeah, and he sort of promised to write the tale, didn't he? Wasn't that the point that he'd, he'd write Gotrek's saga and then gets sick of calling him Manling all the time and <laughs> has a strop? It's a, it's kind of cool though, in in the sense that the premise of the Gotrek Phoenix novels is you know this dwarf comes up to him in bar and goes, "Here is some money, write my saga." I'm a suicidal dwarf. I'm about to run into the mouth of a dragon. Just write about that. And he's like, oh, okay, go on. That, that's a job that'll last two weeks. 15 years later, he's like, have you not died yet? But still, anyway, it's apparently the last novel. Um, officially, it's out in May. It's also out right now because Black Library, short version, the way Games Workshop kind of distribute their books is interesting. You should be able to get your hands on it everywhere from May. Um, but before then, you can get it in like select games workshops and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, what else? Um, the Radiant State is coming out, which is the final part of the Wolfhound Century. If you're reading the Wolfhound Century, brilliant. Well done, you. Uh, I hear it's wonderful. I read the first one, quite enjoyed it. Never got around to reading the rest. Uh, it's apparently fantastic, kind of alternate history Russian stuff with angels okay. and earth power and weirdness and all sorts of stuff. I hear good things, but moving on. Uh, and Naomi Novik, who we quite like, wrote the Tamer novels, which we really enjoyed on the show. Uh, Ninfa went on about them at length. Uh, has written a new one called Uprooted. Uh, it's apparently it's a, a kind of grim fairy tale style fantasy fantasy place, and there they are living in their kind of fantasy place, and everything's okay except for the fact that the woods are full of monsters, and there's a guy called the Dragon who lives down the road who protects him from all the monsters. But oh, that's he's good. also you know he's kind of an evil wizard, right? Or okay. you know maybe maybe not an evil wizard. He's a misunderstood wizard. He calls him, calls himself the Dragon. Okay. And every right. ten years he demands a maiden from the village. Oh, I see. Right, so, so he protects them from the monsters, but in exchange for tribute. Right, got it. And uh, the plot of this is the main character's best friend is going to be selected as tribute. Okay. So, And she wants to stop that from happening. Didn't Nympha quite like this? Am I, am I right on that? Nympha quite liked... It uh, sounded quite good, I thought, when we talked about it. She quite liked the Tamer novels, which are the ones that uh, Naomi Novik did beforehand. Ah, so this is the new one that's coming out just in May. Um, shall we? Shall we get towards the end of these? We'll just finish off with James Goss and Douglas Adams. So you know, it, there's a bit of me that's like this is the last Douglas Adams book because you know Douglas Adams. Uh, but James Goss, who we absolutely adore, we loved haters, has written Doctor Who: City of Death, which is the one where they go to Paris. Oh right, the, the one where uh, Douglas Adams. Uh, wrote uh, they went to Paris and then later on he recycled the plot for um, for his uh, it's got the galaxy stuff oh no for um, no for uh, Dirt Gently Dirt, Dirt Gently yeah yeah, yeah the, the last bit of this says really dumb private investigators that's Dirk Gently which I love I love that rule and I'm gutted they're not going to make any more of it for TV well, the, the, the really dumb private investigator in City of Death is uh, this this lump of a man who's basically used to, to punch things. And he's, he's one, of those com- one of those characters that I wanted to be a companion because I just love the idea of this guy who's just like, I'm a private detective. No, you're not. You're a thug. Your, your job is to be a thug and to, to open doors. It's like, you open doors using your lockpicking skills because you're a private detective? No, you thump things. Well done. I quite like City of Death, the the original. Yeah, the, original the, the show series. is good. Yeah, and it's James Goss who's doing the adaptation of Douglas Adams's notes, so it should be quite good. Cool. Um, so fingers crossed. Well, I'm, we might just see if we can get hands on that. I'll give it a bit of a read. 
Because um, that's what you do with books, you read them, apparently. You're not supposed to eat them. I've been saying for the last year on this show, hello, bibliophiles, and I've just assumed that, you know, you turn them into a nice porridge, but apparently that's not how it works. Anyway, shall we um, Shall we get on with other books? Are we going to talk about the, the last book on your piece of paper? Oh, shall we? Do you want to, or mm. not? I, we could say that for another episode. We could talk about that later. So we'll talk okay, about it sometimes. later. If you know of any other books coming out that you think we should be talking about and we haven't done yet, then why not? You can catch us on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr, Mixcloud and iTunes. We are um, Radio Bookworm on Twitter, Radio Bookworm on Tumblr and Radio Bookworm on Facebook. If you go to our Tumblr page as well, you can find links to our Mixcloud and our iTunes. Uh, FabRadioInternational.com also has a website. We'll be back. So, Heart of the World series by Cole Buchanan starts off with Forlander and then the second book is Stands a Shadow and they are proper full-on fantasy novels. You know how I know it's a proper full-on fantasy novel? Because I turn the page and there's a map. That's what you want. You want a map, you want a proper fantasy map. I don't even know where I am without a map. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Terry Pratchett, who parodied uh, fantasy very superbly and has made a career of parodying fantasy always took the mickey out of the idea of a map on the inside cover you know there's a map here even though he's quite fond of maps himself. I was going to say more on that later <laughs> but you open you open up the Fallander which is the first book and you have to take a look at the map and what we see here is we see this place called the Holy Empire of Man now that's two ends and that's everywhere Holy Empire of Man is uh, is all over the place everywhere seems to be the Holy Empire of Man Let's see, where else Where else isn't the, the Holy Empire? Oh, the Mercian Freeports. Oh, well, they're horribly outnumbered. Oh, I wouldn't want to be a member of the Mercian Freeports. So, Farlander is about a guy who lives in the Mercian Freeports. Oh. Specifically Roshan, uh, which is a... Sorry, specifically a member of the Roshan, a guild of assassins. Because that's what you want to be. You want to be in a guild of assassins, especially if you're horribly out, outnumbered. So it's good that they can have a guild for consolidated bargaining. And <laughs> it, it's it's not so much it's not so much a guild. It's more like an association of thugs. I see. So they're they're kind of like a secret of order, but everyone knows who they are because you want to be able to hire an assassin. Yeah. So the you know they're a secret of association slash holy order slash you know they have kind of Jedi Knight style thug organization. Jedi Knight style thug. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I imagine you have a temple, but it's full of people who just, you know, they're basically murderers. I used to go to a church like that, but okay, carry on. So, at the start, the, the Heart of the World series is is the story of Ash. He's he's getting on. Um, he's old for an assassin. Okay. He he's part of the the Russian conspiracy, um, and you know he's he's living he's living in the Mercian Freeports. He's getting on quite well. Um, unfortunately, world politics is sort of getting in the way. The Holy Empire of Man really, really wants to, 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 to force the issue. And he's been looking for an excuse to force the issue for some time. Surely that's just a really good place for an assassin to be. Well, but you'd think so. Professionally, you know. Uh, well, he's kind of semi-retired, though. He's kind ah. of, he doesn't really want to get drawn into things. So things start going a bit horribly wrong when someone murders someone who's protected by the Russian. A young lady gets murdered by this guy. 
and he, she's protected by the Russian, so the Russian have to act. That's how their reputation works. Of course. You're protected by them. Unfortunately, the murderer is the favoured son of the, the Grand Matriarch um, of the Holy Empire of Man. So, so this, this lady, all-powerful, rules an empire, pretty much untouchable. Yeah. Her children, pretty much untouchable. One of them rocks up, murders a young lady because he can, and it's kind of a challenge to the Russian. Yeah. So Ash turns around and goes, Oi! And the Russian are like, uh, This is not a fight we want to be involved in. And he's like, But we've got rules and we have to go and do this. And they're like, I'll tell you what, you, you go you go and do that, and, and then we can save face. And he's like, uh, Are you sure? He's like, Yeah, you go and do that. And we'll save face. He's like, Okay, well, I'll need someone to help me out. So he gets an apprentice called Nico. Who's a young idiot? He's a, he's a gutter rat. He's a gutter rat from the streets. Literally, um, Ash picks this guy up, recruits him, and says, "You know, you can be a hero." So they start off in Barcos, which is the kind of New York City of the, the Mission Freeports, mm. and it's more kind of a gutter running style, dirty, really gritty city. And the thing that Cole does really well in his books is he gets the atmosphere. Mm. So it starts off really cold. Um, they're in the kind of you know that kind of far north start start style cliche, and then he does he does temperature and he does the sights and he does the smells, and the nice thing about Ash and Nico is Nico is a young cocky man, Ash is an old grumpy man. They do not get on, okay, at all. But over the time, of course, it's master and apprentice. It's like, you know, you should do it this way, but we've just kicked the door down and said and got an enormous fight. Hurrah! Mm. Slight spoilers, because we're going to talk about the second book as well. By the time we get to the second book, um, if this can be started as the sparks of war, it's a full roaring fire by the time we get to, to stand to shadow. We still have we still have our assassins doing their assassin things. We also have other assassins. Uh, there's an assassin called Che, who's, who's running around, who's working on the side of the Empire. Okay. Uh, he's also Russian. Uh, he's been hired to do, do assassin things for essentially the bad guys. That doesn't work out well. There's a great character in this, uh, a chap called Barn, who who is a soldier who really doesn't want to fight because it's war well, a terrible idea. And given all the other characters, all the other characters are hyper violent mm. and, and kind of quite quite crunchy. We we end up with uh, some interesting, shall we say, conflict. Um, there's also a character called Curl. She's not very hand- she's not handled very well, I'm afraid. She she's a nice enough character, but she she just doesn't get enough to do. I would like to right. see more of Curl. We might see more of Curl in the next book, which is coming out very soon, but I'd be surprised. What what why would you particularly want to see more of her? She's got an interesting backstory. She's got an interesting characterization. She just doesn't do much. Is the thing. Do you think that yeah, probably you, you don't as a writer you don't put characters like that in not to do anything she she kind of she works as she works as motivation for other characters and she's right. you know she's a bit she's a bit of a foil for other plots that are going on which is fine but i wish there was more that she i wish she had more action i, I wish she had more agency in okay. that sure. um so yes so heart of the world uh it's a three book series we're only two books in so far um is it any good? Yes. Otherwise, I wouldn't be really talking about it in this way. Um, is it a lot of fun? Yes. Is it violent? Oh, goodness, yes. Is it action-packed? Oh, goodness, yes. Yeah. 
um, it, by the, as we get towards the end, it's practically burning. Right. You know, you know, the, the books, the world is on fire. The books are on fire. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of atmosphere as well. Uh, it's quite a free flowing style as well. It's one of the styles that you, you sit there and you go, right, okay, this is meant to be cinematic. And once you pull back, you can see see more what's going on. Mm. And it's that, again, it's that layered world building as well. Like not quite clearly based on history. A lot of fantasy authors and massive fantasy fans. You can tell that Carl Cannon is a huge fantasy, uh, huge fantasy fan and a huge historian as well. Okay. Um, so yes, Heart of the World. Um, first book is called Farlander. Second book is called Stands of Shadow. Uh, it is available on Pan Macmillan or Tor, as we call it. Um, and a heck of a lot of fun. Cool. I'll give it a go. Uh, and coming up next, we'll be uh, chatting away to someone awesome. the world 24 hours a day this is Fanboyian International hello again so we were very lucky enough to catch up with an author for your delight and delectation Indeed. Embrace the alternative. This, this is Fabrician International. Pat Kelleher, welcome to the bookworm. Thank you very much. So what can you tell us about the new book that you have coming out? Um, yeah, it's, um, it's the collected edition of No Man's World, which follows the adventures of a First World War Pals Battalion from Northern Town on the Somme, um, who gets taken away to um, an alien world and have to survive with what they have in the trenches um, and the level of technology that was available in the First World War. So we have um, grenades and guns. We also have a Mark I tank, um, which entered service several months before they were before they vanished. And we also have um, a Sopworth Strutter plane, which was the first British aircraft to enter service with... Um, synchronised gearing, which meant that they could fire through the propellers. So, yeah, they're, they're, they end up on an alien planet. It's a death world. You know, every ecological niche is filled, and they're just dumped there and have to survive. Um, for how long, they don't know. There is a villain of the piece, a Lieutenant Jeffries, whom they blame for their predicament, and who claims that he knows a way back, but subsequently vanishes, and um, they have to search for him across the planet, meeting the alien races and creatures, and trying to figure out how to survive, if there's a way home, um, if there isn't, can they carry on? Um, yeah, so it's, um, it's, a, it's a pulp fiction adventure. Why World War One? Why a friend's battalion? Well, I was, I've always been fascinated by World War One Ever since I was a child, I used to get World of Wonder magazine, which was a kind of sister magazine to um, look and learn. And they used to have a, a, a piece every issue, which was sort of strange stories around from around the world. And one was about... Um, a World War One battalion that allegedly just vanished into thin air. Um, I subsequently found out this was actually based in truth and was actually the, um, the Sandringham Regiment, uh, which was put together from the Royal Family Sandringham Grounds. They went over to Gallipoli and allegedly went into battle, 
cloud came down, lifted, I mean, it lifted, they'd gone. And it was taken as a sign that God had lifted them up out of, out of their current torture, torturous position. And it was repeated in the press quite an awful lot and seemed to be the accepted story until after the war when the, the royal family sent their chaplain out to Greece to find out what happened, um, or Turkey. And um, basically, the, the truth was much more prosaic. They'd been slaughtered by the Tur- Turks and dumped into a ravine. The legend persisted. Uh, it's one of, the, one of many legends that persists through the First World War, despite it being one of the first wars that had this great industrialisation of death. Um, there was still an awful lot of superstition around, you know, with the, things like the Angel of Mons, again, the Phantom Bowman, uh, which was actually based on a story by Arthur Macken, but it had been, been repeated so often it became truth. People believed it and repeat, repeated it back to Macken um, and wouldn't believe that he'd actually written the story. So that was one of the things. That was the main piece there. As far as I'm aware, nobody had ever used the, the First World War as the background to um, sort of science fiction story before that I was aware of. So I looked around at um, the fiction of the period, um, you know, H.G. Wells, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, Kipling, Edward Bulwer, Lytton, people like that, and um, Edgar Rice Burroughs. And I think it just it just started to grow on me, I think, the idea. But I, realized, I soon realised that if I was going to do First World War soldiers on an alien planet, I'd have to do the research that I want, I'd want it to be First World War soldiers. I didn't want it to be just anybody. So, um, yeah, I did a lot of research on that. And the more I read, the more I realised this, I thought I thought it was a really strong idea. You also wrote a Gods and Monsters book for Abaddon. How different was that from your previous work? Yeah, that was, that was, that was a lot of fun for me. It was, again, it was, it was a complete change of pace. Um, but uh, I had to have qualms following in Chuck's um, footsteps initially. Until I realised that it was absolutely, he has such a unique voice that there was no way I could try and replicate that or follow that. So I just decided to plough my own path. I picked uh, a small character that, he, that appeared in his book for about two or three pages. And um, now that was Coyote, the uh, Native American trickster god. And that was something I'd always been interested in anyway, sort of trickster, trickster mythology. And I looked into that and it was, it's a fascinating myth cycle because he's unlike practically any other god you might have come across he's the the winnebago tribe have a, a myth cycle about coyote and he's basically used as a bad example for everything um a bad example of social mores a bad example of how not, how not to do things so it just seems like a, a wonderful take on the old sort of gods and monsters thing and i just ran with it i think uh i once, once i realized that Coyote kept his penis in a bag around his neck <laughs> and uh, read the mythology of it. That, that, that was just like a godsend, to be honest. And I just, I, I just thought I had fun with it. So, What are your current projects? We're working on some short stories. Um, I've got a, a short story in for um, Fox Spirits for the, the last of their Bushy Tales trilogy of anthologies, which is um, called, called uh, Mouse and Minotaur, which obviously has to have a mouse in it. And then any other creature from Greek mythology. I'm also working on a horror sh- a short story for um, Nightwatch Press, which is run by um, Teresa Derwin. It's a book, it's an anthology edited by Alex Davis, and it's a horror anthology. It's based on the Ten Commandments. Um, unfortunately, I got the email. There was only one commandment that hadn't been taken, 
that that was thou shalt not commit adultery. So I find myself in the position of <laughs> writing a horror story about adultery, which is um, pushing my comfort zone a little bit. <laughs> but I think um, and I think I'm enjoying it, although I do feel kind of sordid and dirty as I'm writing it. <laughs> Are there any projects you'd like to be involved in? I'd, I'd really like to have a go at 2000 AD. Um, I got close um, a year or so ago, and I worked for Rebellion on um, Sniper Elite 3, the computer game, and they wanted to do um, a comic strip based on that. Um, so I had, to, I had to contact Tharg. So I thought, I'll make a really good impression, which worked until my wife decided to send an email to our um, decorator, whose name was also Matt. And um, I just got this email back from Tharg saying, unfortunately, I don't do painting and decorating. <laughs> and so I thought, right, that's it. That's it. That's my shot gone. <laughs> he's, never, he's never going to reply to me again. <laughs> but um, yeah, 2000 AD, I'd, I'd love to work on 2000 AD, I think. What advice would you give a younger version of yourself? Start writing sooner. I mean, I didn't really start writing until I, I'd left college. I was, about, I was about 26 when I started writing. Um, I spent most, most of the next 20 years writing children's comics, um, which is a, a great learning curve, um, and I've enjoyed it an awful lot. And I think, knowing what I know now, if, if I was 20 years younger, I think I'd have a, I think I'd have a look. Um, yeah, I was 20 years younger, yeah. I'd say start sooner. If you were stranded on a desert island with only one book for company, what would that book be? It would probably have to be, um, it would either be Mervyn Peake's Gorman Gas Trilogy, or it would have to be Flann O'Brien's The Third Policeman, both of which I reread constantly, at least once a year. Simpsons or Futurama? Uh, Simpsons? I think I've, I've never actually really seen Futurama, so yeah, I'd have to go with The Simpsons. Monsters or Aliens? Monsters, I think. Monsters because they, 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 they work on a, on a psychological level for us. I think a, a, I mean, aliens are just out there. They might not exist, whereas we have our own monsters. Truth or beauty? Truth, I think. I think truth had its own beauty. Pat Kelleher, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This is Fab Radio International. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about Terry Pratchett's Raising Steam, which came out in 2013. Um, Sir Terry Pratchett, national treasure that he is, has been writing Discworld for ages. Uh, for those of you that don't know, the Discworld is kind of a, a skewed take on the generic fantasy world um, that allows the writer to sort of play with lots of different ideas, sometimes reflecting our own world. There's been a few books kind of like this one, where a concept from outside the generic fantasy world creeps into it, and he's got this this mechanism um, whereby ideas drift through the multiverse, and they have kind of a life on of their own, and they look for minds to take root in. Um, he's done it with cinema before, um, all sorts of other things. And um, this is Terry Pratchett having a go at uh, steam power, um, which. From what I can tell from, from reading it, he's a bit of a geek for. He does like his steam engines and things like that. So it was good. Um, it, it, it's the, the, you know, he, do, he does the, the, the steam obsession very, very well. Um, he's he done it with football in the past, which he's slightly less keen on. 
um, and you can kind of tell the interest wasn't there by all reports. But you know, I've got a lot of fantasy friends who are into football and weren't particularly into that book. But this one, yeah, he does he does the steam geek thing extremely well. So the the, the steam um, particle travels through the multiverse and, and embeds itself in the mind of a flat-capped northern stereotype called Dick Simnel, <laughs> who who has the knowledge of of to slide in rule. Um, uh, it, it's kind of written in that accent, or at least Dick Simnel's dialogue is. Uh, as a northerner, I didn't feel condescended. I did. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's yeah. Uh, D- Dick Simnel uh, has has this idea of um, getting power from a kettle because um, he, he sees the power of the, of, of, of the lid being forced up. It's easy to get power from a kettle. You add tea. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. And interestingly enough. Um, Terry Pratchett doesn't go the full steampunk route, which he might have done. Um, he could have he could have had a go at the steampunk scene as well, but he, he doesn't. He just he's doing it in a sort of very you know classic industrial revolution. He's doing the industrial revolution essentially, or at least the the, the uh, locomotive parts of the of the industrial revolution. There are things hinted at that you could have big steam machines driving other things, but he's, he's more concerned with the locomotive uh, side. Um, so how do the denizens of the Discworld cope with steam power? Well, they they cope with it in the same way that they always do in Terry Pratchett's world. Um, the only way to make money out of it is obviously to take it to Ankh-Morpork. Um, Ankh-Morpork, for, for people who don't know Pratchett, is kind of an unholy, com- unholy blend of London and New York, really. Um, it's where everything happens. Um, it's a big kind of rotten stew of a city um, presided over by this kind of genius some might say evil genius, others might say benevolent dictator um, this character called the Patrician um, who rules the city with an iron fist and a velvet glove one man, one vote and he's that man he is that man and he has the vote yeah exactly exactly. Um, and Dick Simnel takes Iron Girder, his prototype. It's great <laughs> to to the city, and uh, he approaches one of Pratchett's slightly more recent characters, um, who's sort of come into some money. Uh, it's the, the the Sewage King, uh, Harry. What's his name? Where's my name? Harry King of the Yellow River. Harry, Harry King of the Yellow River, who is basically a guy who started out collecting urine for, you know, dyers and things like that, and then moved into sewage, and then built up and up and up. Um, one of the things that, that Pratchett does is is sort of he gets unlikely people and sort of redeems them and builds them up, and Harry King has sort of started from being out this sort of peapot collector, then he sort of becomes kind of a, a sewage magnate, a bit of a gangster as well, who bullies all the other people out of business, but he's sort of become this kind of Again, he's sort of grown from ruthlessness to benevolence, and you know he sort of takes in the goblins and things like that. Pratchett's redeemed goblins as well in some of his previous books, so there's there's goblins floating around in in, in this book too. Uh, Dick Simnel comes to him, uh, impresses him with the magic of his steam engine, gets sponsorship. Then the patrician hears about it uh, and sets his best conniving rogue, uh, Moist von Litvig, 
on it. Um, Moist von Lipwig has uh, previously fixed the postal system. Uh, Pratchett did banking for a while as well, uh, at a time that was very appropriate. And Moist von Lipwig fixed that. And now he's here to, to fix steam engines and, and, and the, the sort of getting steam engines to, 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 to cross different people's lands and, and, and how it's going to revolutionise transport. Pratchett clearly loves the steam engine, and there's a, there's a lot in it about how the, the you know the engine almost seems alive, how it sort of entrances people, how you know uh, there's a certain kind of person who, when they see the steam engine, the only thing they want to do is get on that footplate and, and and ride it and become involved in the running of the steam train. He does that a lot. Um, typically for Pratchett, because it comes from one of his supernatural multiverse ideas, the steam engine itself is alive and seems to sort of talk to the people who are close to it. You know, Dick Simnel has this almost sort of, almost sort of relationship with this engine. That's normally a bad thing in the disc world. It is, and there are sort of hints that this could be quite sinister and things coming out of the dungeon dimensions and things like that, but not in this case. Um, the steam engine does kill someone at one point. Um, in self-defence! Um, this is this is um, yeah. It, it's a long story. Long and the short of it is, Pratchett's sort of broken his own rules, really. In the, these ideas are not the idea is not a, a way of letting things from the dungeon dimensions through. It's not. It's not gonna. It's not here to destroy the world. It is here to unite. Well, to bring the 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 discord, disparate things in the discord closer together. He slightly retreads old ground. Um, he goes back to what he did with Snuff with the goblins. Um, because the goblins, as has been previously revealed, ha- have technical aptitude. And basically they just hang around the engineers for two weeks and come out being really, really good at engineering. Um, also, he's going overall ground in the, 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 the fragile peace that was negotiated in Thud between the twal- trolls and the dwarves has kind of turned against humans now. The dwarves are going a little bit IS. Um... The, the definite uh, sort of terrorist metaphors going on as you know these sort of uh, young dwarves get radicalised by the deep dwarves and then go and start trying to blow up trains. Um, Blimey! Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. bit on the nose. It is um, very much on the nose. There's a lot in this book which is on the nose. Um, there is a heartbreaking passage early on with the patrician who everybody reads Pratchett sort of. Although he's initially portrayed ominously, you read more than one book by Pratchett, you look forward to seeing him because, yeah, he's scary, yeah, he can have you killed, but he's really cool and really clever and really manipulative. And actually, he's kind of on the side of order and and putting things right. Um, But because he's this sort of inscrutable genius, you know, everyone's scared of him and respects him. But there's a slightly heartbreaking part. You know, for any of you that are aware, Sir Terry's got, got an illness... And if any of you know people who've had that illness and see things happen to them in the early stages, it will hurt you when you read this because there's a bit early on, very near the beginning of the book, where the patrician has an absence moment and then becomes horribly frustrated because he can't do his crossword. And his personal his his his, his personal secretary basically goes and threatens the newspaper crossword man and tells him to tone it down a little bit. Uh, it's absolutely heartbreaking and you're reading it and you're like Sir Terry, oh come on, it can't be that bad 
And, and you know, of course the patrician turns it round and demonstrates by the end of the book that he's still got a few tricks up his sleeve. And there are, you know, the patrician does pull a few cool things out of the bag, so you're kind of relieved by that. But, but there are some things in this which are quite on the nose. Um, I've got to say, overall... I didn't like it as much as I have other Pratchett books. Not because I was particularly upset by it. I'm one of those horrible, perverse readers that likes being upset by books. Um, but it was quite disparate, really. Um, some of it is quite repetitive. Um, I swear I've read the same sentence three or four times at different parts of the book while Pratchett does his usual turns and turns you know so for example the times when it's describing how the engine is alive and certain people are sort of mesmerized by it it just happens like all the time and you're reading it over and over again and i don't know it the writing just isn't quite as good apart from at certain particular moments there are some wonderful moments in it it doesn't pull together quite as well the writing doesn't feel quite as strong um yeah i mean fans will enjoy it there's a lot to enjoy there. There's a lovely bit between... Uh, well, Vimes comes in towards the end as well. That's Pratchett's sort of hard-bitten policeman character. And there's a wonderful bit where Vimes and Moist um, sort of recognise something in each other. They've all... You know, the few times they've met in the past, they, they can't stand each other. Moist is wondering why the patrician puts such a sort of black-and-white kind of hard-nosed person in authority. Vimes is thinking that... You know, Moist is just a low con artist. Why is he giving him any authority? And they reckon, you know, Moist recognises that Vimes can actually be quite a low down, dirty street cop when he wants to be. And Vimes recognises that Moist can get the job done when it comes to the politicking and tricking people that really do need to be tricked to get this done. So there are some lovely moments in there for fans. Um, the, the, the plots are quite hard, um, but the, the, they're not, they don't gel together particularly well, I don't think. It's one of those things with the Discworld books, I feel that regardless of, you know, some of them are much better than others. And mm. Also, there's a whole personal issue there where my favourite is a lot of people's least favourite. I, I Love Small Gods, mm. one of my favourite books that he's written. I did, uh, yeah, I did it too. Um, other people, I, I'm not a massive fan of Jingle. I've read it a couple of times. And I just, I, mm, it mm. doesn't quite, yeah, some wonderful, again, there's some wonderful moments in there where I think it really gels. So I think, you know, it's it's another Terry Pratchett book with some brilliant bits in it and some not-so-brilliant bits in it, so it sounds like yeah. a Terry Pratchett novel. It, it does sound like a Terry Pratchett novel. I I think, f- for me, uh, just the, 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 the basic writing just didn't seem quite as, as strong in, in terms of even, even the style, you know. Um, and I gather unusually for a Terry Pratchett novel, it's got a, got a map on the cover. Yeah, there's a map, yeah. Talking about maps, and after all the mockery did about maps... To be fair, because this is about making the world a smaller place, and where this, you know, a lot of an awful lot of the content is Moist von Litwig charging around on a golem horse, <laughs> negotiating with people. <laughs> the Sh- golem horse is quite cool as well. Shall we talk about maps in the next bit? Let's talk about maps in the next bit. <laughs> the world 24 hours a day this is Fab Radio International 
So, uh, on today's show, we've been reviewing books that have maps in the front. Eee, I love a map. So, <laughs> I, I'm rather fond, fond of a map. It's one of those tropes, so I think I think it's partially it's J.R. Tolkien's fault, in the sense that he wrote a novel with a, with a map in the front. There's loads of things, there's loads of maps there. I seem to recall that he never particularly intended that to be in there, it's just that the publishers kind of like saw his big pile of notes and went oh that's really beautiful and just put it in <laughs> and it's kind of, it's formed a sort of you know, a standard trope in fantasy novels but, but, but very often those worlds are so big that a map just helps you as a reader does, I think, yeah. figure out where you are at any particular point it's one of those things that I never actually learnt as a child is that people talk about reading a map and when they talk about reading a map they, they, they mean how to get you from A to B and as, as kids we're taught that maps are for showing you where things are so you can go from one place to another and you look at an atlas or a globe and you go okay well I know where everything is but that's not reading a map you read a map because you understand why this country is next to that country and how that changes the world maps tell you mm. so much more and the reason a lot of fantasy books have a map in the front is world building. It gives you there's a there's a great Gaunt's Ghosts novel, uh, Dan Abnett, where it's a series. It's a map of the planet that they're on, and it's a space novel. So they go from planet to planet all the time. But it's a map of 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 the planet that they're on, how, how everything's worked out. And then you turn the page, and the entire thing is almost set in one place. And it's just a map of these tiny corridors that they're trapped in. And you're like, right, so the world is this big, they're in this one place, and they're against the world. Oh. And it just gives you this wonderful... Mm. It's a sense of scale, isn't it? It's a sense of scale and perspective. You kind of you see how difficult it is for them doing what they're doing. Mm. And I like that. I like that when you when a book's... A book starts off with a schematic. It's that picture that tells a thousand words. It also tells you so much more as well. So but the, the other thing that the maps do is kind of very often they'll give you an indication of the style of the book um, so my, my first map experience in a book really was nothing to do with cult or genre really, uh, was Millie Molly Mandy who lives in this little village and at the front piece of all of her books um, you get a little map of the village and where her house is and where her best friend Susan's house is and where the school is and where the shop is and you know arrow to big town and that sort of thing um, and again it shows you how big the world is but also it gives you an idea of the sort of um, atmosphere of the world um, you know the little, I, little country houses and things and I, sort of set in, the, in a time of the past I agree and it, it's interesting to look at names on maps um, I'm looking in the Pratchett book here, so you've got, you know, these sort of, sort of arcane fantasy names type towns like uh, Stolat and things like that. But then you've got, you know, the the village of Big Cabbage <laughs> is marked on here, and uh, a, a nice reference to that moving pictures thing I was talking about earlier. There's a, there's a place just outside Ankh-Morpork called Paramount. Mm. Um, uh, so all all the Pratchett stuff is in here. Um, um, Lake Overshot. Uh, the village of two shirts, and it's yeah. It is there not a village called Badass? There is. I'm not sure if this is on this map. I'm going to look for it now. One, uh, of the, one of the fascinating things I found about the Discworld is the sense that he he didn't go in for a map, even though he quite clearly knew where everything was in his head. Yeah. He just didn't want. He made a point of not having a map there. But looking at a map of the Discworld tells you so much about the Discworld. Mm. It tells you. Everything you need to know is in there because the four elephants, mm. the turtle, you know, the fact that there's gold in the middle 
the, the way it all works and the way it all balances out tells you more about the, the author's mind and then when you get to a map of the streets of Amarpork and clearly in his head he'd mapped it out he knew where everything was supposed mm. to be and, and how the streets work and how one place is very dense and another place is close to the river so that means that they have this sort of economy which means that they behave this way so the shades mm. which is the really dodgy area mm. is next to a place that's very close to essentially the sewage and that sort of thing and you can you can see the world building from the from the ground. But he, up. he never drew it. They're, they're all sort of fan collaborators, aren't they? Well, mm. not fans. You know, but they're people who are writers and stuff themselves. But they're collaborators he, and stuff who've, who've written all the maps with him. Who sat down with yeah. him and worked yeah. out where, where yeah. these things are. And it's it's almost like a map in reverse with the the, the Discworld novels, in the sense that we've kind of extracted the map from his yes. from from his work. Definitely. And yeah, so many so many fantasy worlds start with a map. Um, the Dragonlance novels, which I am absurdly in love with, even though they are not brilliant, <laughs> uh, clearly has clearly starts with a map. Absolutely, all the all all the worlds, all the various bits and pieces, all the the nations, they're all mm. divided into kind of convenient pick and mix ways. But the wonderful thing there, of course, is the cataclysm, which is the thing that is the the. Uh, a mountain is dropped on the world and that causes the world to become a desert. And the thing that works with the Dragonlance world is you take the modern map from the first series with the Gripic Hall in it because someone's dropped a rock, oh, on, rock them. on the world, yeah. And then then they produced for the for the next series pre cataclysmic map. And you're like, Alright, oh, now I understand why the city of Planthis is nowhere near anywhere else because before they dropped a rock on the world, it was the scent it was the heart of everywhere. You know, all the rivers came to it next to a, a major mm. river, but now, of course, someone's dropped a rock on things and it's gone horribly wrong. And it, it again, in a very, in two pages, it told you everything you needed to know about that world. And then you get the the opposite extreme, which is that entire book that's the Game of Thrones maps. Yes, I, but I love that. I love the Game of Thrones maps. It's very I, obviously. I want to get the pop up one. <laughs> the pop up one's amazing. The pop up one's a bit like the, the credits to the show, and, but you get all the different structures there and everything. Mm. But I mean, talking about maps and how in Pratchett's world it was sort of fan or collaboration assistance. Mm is when fans then go on and make stuff themselves. So, again, Game of Thrones, somebody has done, like, mm. a London tube map-style map of the Game of Thrones world with, like, transit lines <coughs> in it, of, mm. of like, a li- and this, there's a line across the wall where all the stations bar four are closed, you know. <laughs> Someone did a, a map of the Commonwealth series from Peter Hamilton's Commonwealth series, and I have to be very careful because there's spoilers for the series, but the, it's an it's a intergalactic... Story where they use space trains Ooh. to get from place A to B, and they have the, these grand kind of transport systems. Where do all the tracks go? Uh, it's it's they open a open up a warp port. Oh, right, I see. In yeah. space, yeah. and then the train goes through because if you walk through, you get incinerated because mm. you have radiation. So you you essentially have this heavily armored bullet that takes you through. Yep. And someone drew there's a fan fan drawing of how everything connects and how that looks actually in space so it's a big space map mm. and there's a the, the the point of one series is the map does change and the before and after is hilarious because it goes from this kind of proper space map to something that's much different and much more abstract and much more clever 
I, I really, I, I also really like it when they do the tube map thing on any story. You can tell stories using a, a tube map diagram, and you can follow the various plots of various stories, which they've also done with Game of Thrones. Mm. Um, no maps of. I've not seen any maps of Hogwarts. Uh, you uh, can get Marauders maps. Yeah, yeah, you can get Marauders maps. I think, but it's, it's not Hogwarts by its very nature, given that bits of it moves. Virtually unmappable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you get the Marauders map. <coughs> the Marauders maps that I've seen have almost got they're almost segmented because the bit that you're in could have moved. <laughs> I, I want that as an app on my phone. Yeah, you know, I, and for actually that's that's what I, I Google Stock. I, Google Stock. <laughs> I actually want a Marauders map, which I turn it on. It shows me everywhere that's around on on Hogwarts, and then when I close it, it says mischief managed. That's that's what I want. I want a, I want a magical Google Star map. I'm the, the, they've done something the like go, that. The Google tells me that, that an attempt has been made. An attempt has been made. Have, have Several attempts have been made. Has the Ministry of Magic gotten involved and stopped them? Is that, is that <laughs> the problem? And um, I think Warner Brothers might have got involved and stopped them. There's That's a, what you meant, wasn't it, Ed? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Warhammer Fantasy has uh, has various maps of not only the the world of Warhammer, but the the map of the Chaos Wastes. <laughs> That's a stupid idea. Which is hilarious because for, for those of you who don't know, of course, the chaos wastes uh, just randomly open portals over their mansions, and you find yourself in an entirely different part of your reality. Yeah. And someone's drawn someone to this kind of this. It's almost like a choose your own adventure sort of. You know, suddenly you're here. Well, that makes no sense. Well, no, it doesn't make any sense. It's chaos. Yeah, a landscape that mutates on a daily basis. <laughs> but um. The, the Elric novels as well for, for that sort of thing uh, the Elric novels do again describe the world in one map because everything's in the middle everything that matters is in the middle everything's about Mal- Melnibane and it's horrible uh, you don't want to go to Melnibane it's absolutely awful and the rest of the world is much more interesting the Young Kingdoms is one of those maps that tells you so much about the world and we're about to uh, leave ourselves if we can find a map to show us where the door is. Across the world, the real alternative. FabRadioInternational.com The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab, Radio International and Starburst Magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Cy Lloyd. Produced by A.L. Johnson. To close our show today, a wizard's staff has a knob on the end.
wizard staff has a knob on the end. The wizard staff has a knob on the end. The wizard staff has a knob on the end. A knob on the end. A knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. The wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A knob on the end. A knob on the end. A wizard when young has a staff that is small. It's puny and weak, ineffective withal. It grows with his power until it stands tall. As his fame and his glory expand. As his fame and his glory expand. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A knob on the end. A knob on the end. The staff of a wizard can hold many spells for finding lost objects or dousing new wells, for banishing demons to bottomless hells and bringing them back on demand. And bringing them back on demand. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A knob on the end. A knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A knob on the end. A knob on the end. When a wizard is old and is starting to fade. He looks on his staff that with cunning he made the crown of his life and the tool of his trade. Together they make their last stand, and together they make their last stand. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A knob on the end. A knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. Wizard staff has a knob on the end. A wizard staff has a knob on the end. A knob on the end. A knob on the end.